Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today's guest is Harvard Business School professor and contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Dr. Tom Eisenman, author of Why Startups Fail. And I want to thank the listeners who are tuning in because we have listeners from Croatia, France, India, Ireland, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom, just to name a few. So, Tom, start out by telling us about your own professional background. So, I've been, um, uh, thanks for hosting, Mark, um, and everybody, thanks for listening. Um, I've been on the Harvard Business School faculty teaching entrepreneurship for 24 years. Um, uh, before that, I got my doctorate at Harvard Business School. <clears throat> that was a midlife crisis. Um, uh, came in my late 30s. And, and before that, 11 years at McKinsey and & Company um, and uh, uh, Harvard MBA and, and Harvard College BA before that. Well, you can never leave home. <laughs> I know, 4-H, if uh, that means anything to anybody. Yeah, um, you're like, you're like faculty the in three degrees. mom's basement. <laughs> Before we dive into the book, can you tell us what impact the pandemic has had on entrepreneurs? Because I'm thinking more people probably started new businesses as they either lost jobs or saw a new opportunity or didn't get to go back to their employer. What's your take on this? Um, all of the above, um, start rates are up uh, quite dramatically. You know, in, in, um, it, we, um, we, we tend to divide entrepreneurship into three slices, the entrepreneurship of necessity, uh, folks who basically, um, maybe they've been excluded from other opportunities, they, they, they do it because it's their um, only way of making a living, um, sort of more traditional um, small business starts. Um, where, where the entrepreneur isn't seeking to grow dramatically, and then and then high potential stuff, sort of the the, the realm of angel investors and, and venture capitalists, and um, I definitely think what you say, sort of people who lost their job and and are sort of scrambling to make a living, um, we see some of that with the pandemic, and um, the venture capital sector is just absolutely booming. I think it's a surprise to a lot of folks. Um, you know, there's so much money that came pouring in, into the sector over the years. And and um, uh, it just never slowed down the way we thought it might. You know, in 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 um, w- through the Great Recession, there was quite a slowdown in venture capital investing. Uh, didn't happen this time. And then, as you, as you suggest, um, the pandemic has really, in pretty fundamental cha- ways, changed the way we think about how we work and live. And um, of course, uh, those kinds of changes always make for opportunity for entrepreneurs. Yeah, uh, we've, and we've seen a ton of new great companies coming out of this and people, especially younger people saying, you know what, I prefer to work from home. And I, in fact, I prefer not only to work from home, but to work for myself. You write that companies don't usually fail for one reason. Are there a top three or five you can share with us? Yeah, it's it's sort of a, a cascade of questions. Um, it, 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 you know, the, the obvious reason why startups fail is they run out of money and they can't raise more. Um, but that's, you know, that's not really an explanation. It's sort of like saying the, the murder victim died of loss of blood. Um, you know, did they, 
fall down and sort of hit their head, to, you know, where they shot. Um, there are a lot of ways to lose your blood. Um, and, uh, you know, so the next layer is um, they couldn't raise more money because they never really found um, a, a, a product that met a strong unmet customer need. Um, you know, and you can keep asking why, um, you know, was the was the founder just not knowledgeable in, about the sector? Um, was the founder difficult to work with and couldn't attract a great team? So, so um, I mean, for sure, um, you'll hear a lot of investors talk jockey and horse, um, the horse being the opportunity, the jockey being the founders. Um, and at the core, the, the, you know, it, it's some of both. And of course, the, the, the two are hard to separate. You mentioned that failure is a great teacher and that we learn two different ways. What are they? Uh, so we learn from direct experience. Um, there are probably a lot of folks on the call who've um, either led a failed startup or, or been part of one um, a, 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 as an employee. Um, so direct personal experience, and, and that can be um, a, uh, a hard teacher. Um, the, 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 the second way is, of course, vicariously, sort of, sort of from, from understanding other people's experience. You know, if you, if you go to um, the training of, of aircraft pilots, um, the, the National Traffic Safety Board spends a lot of time um, training pilots about near misses. So, you know, there's an awful lot to learn from a pilot who's gotten into some kind of trouble, but manages to, to extricate themselves from the trouble. Same, same thing with startups. Um, and and um, some of what's in the book is um, the failure stories and what we can learn from them. But the book also points to, to examples of, of entrepreneurs who were on the wrong track, but got back on the right track. You had stats about the chances of success based on the entrepreneur's track record. Could you please tell us some of the stats and is it reliable prognosticator of success? Uh, yeah, so the, um, I think what I reference in the book is some research by one of my colleagues um, and his co-authors, Paul Gompers. Um, and, and Paul and these, these, um, these researchers looked at the success rates of serial entrepreneurs, so entrepreneurs uh, who'd done it before. And uh, their measure of success was, um, did you do an IPO? And this is done, um, I mean, the rate of IPOs has slowed down uh, I mean, it's actually picked up in the last year or so, but but we had a dry spell there for um, five years or so. So so the the numbers will seem high to folks, but the um, the the data showed that serial entrepreneurs whose previous startup had succeeded um, were thirty two percent likely to succeed. Serial entrepreneurs whose previous startup had failed were twenty two percent, so much less likely to succeed. And first-time founders were 20%. So um, what that suggests is um, there is learning from experience, but but um, you know there, there's um, something to be said for um, learning from a successful experience. Or um, you know the other way to interpret that result is just some people are better, smarter, um, harder working, whatever it takes than, than others. Yeah, or lucky. <laughs> Yeah, lucky comes in a big in big play. I, I always think that uh, with all the ventures I've been in, I, I probably found the iceberg in the middle of the desert more often than not and hit it. Uh, you uh, are, are CEOs in specific industries that fail less. Or are there industries where they typically will fail less? Yeah. So um, you know, as, as as we had this conversation, I'll reference some research that I did. I, I um, surveyed 
470 early stage founder CEOs. Um, and these are folks who launched a business sometime between 2015 and 2018. I, I wrote everybody in that time frame who raised at least a half a million, somewhere between a half a million and I think the cutoff was 3 million. So a big first round investment. And um, so I think I, I wrote to uh, 3,000 of them and got answers from nearly 500, which is a pretty good survey response rate. And then sorted, uh, there was enough time elapsed after the um, in after 2018 that you could see something about whether these startups were working well or whether they were going off the rails. Some of them had, had failed outright. Some of them were, were struggling. And um, I, I asked the founders, and you know, we, we can guess whether they were honest. Um, basically, if you sold, um, if you took that original equity round and, and sold the equity, would it be worth a lot more than originally valued at um, or a lot less? And, and so, so trending toward success and trending toward failure. I mean, this is way too early to have a, a, a good outcome in most instances. I mean, some of them had already been sold for, for a healthy price or, or for a loss. Um, and, as, and, and, and then I correlated that with just about every variable you can imagine, including industry sector. And um, there weren't big differences between industries, but what stood out is the um, ventures in information technology um, were had higher success rates and lower failure rates, um, especially compared to consumer businesses, consumer products and, and services. Um, and um, B2B, other B2B services were kind of in the middle. Um, a question from the audience. Could the difference in success rates have more to do with the ability to raise funds? Investors tend to chase entrepreneurs with previous successes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, um, the, the folks who, who did the research that I mentioned uh, speculate about a, a lot of causes, including sort of the um, um, success begets success, right? Sort of once once you're on the, the um, radar of investors, um, you have privileged access to uh, capital for sure, but um, be easier to recruit team members. Yeah, so so um, so the big question, which the the nature of the research simply couldn't answer it is, is, is this higher success rate for the serial entrepreneurs related to the quality of the individual, um, you know, to basically success breeding success, you know, and to your point, you know, maybe you were lucky the first time around and now, now sort of good things come your way um, and you're more likely to succeed because you raise more money or you raise it from better people or you attract a stronger team. Um, um, yeah, that's that, that, that. That's entirely within the the the. Uh, or, or did you learn? You know, did you do smart things and you learned from your success and you're applying that um, to the next venture? Because All I remember years ago, let's say prior to 1999, you had a failed venture. It's very hard to raise money for a second one, but then failing became like a badge of honor because VC started um, when they started talking to these second time entrepreneurs who had failed the first time. They felt like they were more grounded, smarter, um, made, were going to make better choices because of how much they learned. It's very hard to learn from success. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, you, you do a lot of work with angel investors, so you, you, you see it up close. I, I would say um, that's right, although I, I think the best VCs and angel investors will probe deeply to figure out what the person has learned from the failure and whether, in fact, whether they've learned. I mean, there's a very natural... Um, ego defensive human behavior to basically blame a failure on 
other people or the universe right um, and any anything except for for my mistakes and um and the many many failed founders will fall victim to that and it's unclear um that they've actually learned much in fact mark um what we see there's there's other research that points to this um because they blame the external factors bad industry um you know the regulators did something crazy they are actually more likely to change these founders um if the attribution is external rather than my own internal my own flaws or mistakes um those failed founders are more likely to change industry and and that's a real prescription for trouble because you know so now you're you're taking a bad um set of management practices which you haven't changed and you're changing the industry and moving into an industry you don't know much about so uh that that's why i think um a lot of failed founders do poorly but but some in fact do learn you know they, they eventually uh, come to grips with what happened and their role in it and, I, I and those think, are the ones who do better i think you're right and i also think it's very hard when entrepreneurs start out being very successful and they just assume that it was all because they were so brilliant as opposed to getting the right people, the right industry, the right timing. There's a lot of things that kind of fell in place. When I interview older entrepreneurs who've had success and failure, they always say to me, I can't get over how lucky I was. It wasn't like I didn't work hard, but I looked across the street and that guy was smarter than I was and he didn't make it. So I was... I find that to be interesting. You have to have a lot what, of what, what you're describing. What we're what we're describing here, psychologists actually have a, a name for it, and it's it's a it's a wonderful name. It's called the fundamental attribution error. And it's fundamental because it's so hardwired into into humans that basically, if if um, I did something bad, my explanation is. Um, my investor pushed me in the wrong direction. My co-founder dropped the ball, lost interest. Um, the regulators did something crazy. Couldn't. But if you did something bad, my explanation is, wow, you either weren't very talented or you weren't working very hard. Or, um, yeah. So, um, which which is one of the reasons um, one of the reasons why we have to be very careful with people's explanations for when, when a startup fails, what went wrong. Yeah, and people were asked those things in job interviews about. You know, tell us about the thing that you failed at. And what did you learn from that? And if they can't do a good job of really having self-awareness about why that was, then you've got real questions. Another question from the audience. Do you feel the failure rate uh, with, will grow faster post-COVID with so many new entrepreneurs coming in and technology disruption happening at a faster pace? How do entrepreneurs increase their chances of success post-COVID? Um. Hard to predict. I mean, yeah, I mean, if there's a lot more startups, um, you know, the question is whether there'll be enough slots, uh, enough ecological niches, if you want a fancy term for all, you know, someplace for all these ventures to to um, survive and thrive. Probably not. So I, I think you probably will see a boost in in failure rates. You know, one of the things we didn't when we talked about the impact of the pandemic you mentioned working from home and, and, you know, an important point is home can be anywhere. So, um, so um, I, I think that's one of the big changes in entrepreneurship is, is you, um, you know, for so long, you had so many startups um, that, that were built in the key hubs of, of San Francisco, New York, Boston, Berlin, London, so forth. Um, and I think that's going to spread out a little bit. And, and I think one of the, um, one of the, 
um, factors that will separate the, the those who succeed and fail will be the ability to take advantage of that. You know, smart people are all over the place, and um, uh, it does take some skill to figure out how to manage a remote workforce. But 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 people have learned a lot about how to do that, and I think um, the entrepreneurs that can take advantage of that will do better. Oh, I had a client of mine that um, built a human resource company, all working from home. Had ninety people working from home, but when he put them together in in one uh, building, the uh, the wheel started to come off. So. He sold the space and, and went uh, virtual again, and that worked out great. Another question from the audience, how successful startups put their teams together? Did you find any solo entrepreneur who managed to put a team together and have a successful startup? If yes, what was the secret source? Uh, oh, so I, in I this, think they meant secret sauce. Secret sauce, yeah. yeah. So in this research I mentioned, um, one of the questions I looked at was solo founder versus co-founders, co you know, basically teaming up with at least one other founder. And uh, I, I think there's a pretty strong presumption in the world of venture capital that um, you need a team, you need, you need a team of co-founders and that solo founders are at a disadvantage. Um, the, um, the research I did doesn't bear that out. Um, basically there was, um, no statistical difference between being in, in terms of your odds of success or failure between being a solo founder versus having a co-founder, you know, and I, I do think, um, you know, a good co-founding team brings a lot of things. You can, you can um, basically um, have a sounding board, um, sort of a trusted partner to sort of test ideas. Um, the the uh, co-founders can balance out each other's, um, highs and lows, they can also, by the way, amplify the highs and lows and sort of, you know, when things get tense, um, you know, it may get tenser. Um, and, 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 and it's pretty clear that um, a lot, there's a lot of conflict on founding teams. So the, all the advantages of having co-founders, I think are offset by some of the disadvantages, which is when people fight, you can have huge distractions. Um, which can actually um, get you into so much trouble that that it that it boosts the failure odds. So I think those the the advantages and the disadvantages tend to net out. And and um, one of the things that's true is a solo founder can simply go faster, right? You don't have to negotiate every key decision with a partner, um, and um, you can be decisive. Um, you, you you may have a higher chance of making mistakes if you don't have the sounding board, but uh, moving faster is a big advantage for an entrepreneur. Yeah, and you got to find the right kind of founder. I was one venture where the founder was very entrepreneurial, co-founder with me and worked really hard at doing it. And the other one uh, had run a large global company and wasn't very entrepreneurial. He he couldn't even write Word documents. He was used to dictating everything <laughs> and, and not working the kind of crazy hours that we're used to working. And the investors yeah, um, wouldn't the, put any uh, more money in. Uh, ben Ben Horowitz, the um, the um, entrepreneur turned um, VC investor behind uh, Andreessen Horowitz, um, talks about big company people being interrupt driven. That basically they sit in their office and there's this, this constant barrage of inbound phone calls and messages and so forth. And you know if you if you're um, a co-founder at a company that has no employees, no one is sending you emails, <laughs> no phone calls, or nothing happens unless you make it happen. And that can be a big adjustment for somebody who spent their whole life, you know, sort of fending off a barrage, sort of triaging, you know, which, 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 which requests do we ignore? Um, You're right about that. 
you list four risks in entrepreneurial startups. What are they? And is there one more worthy to focus on than another? Uh, so, uh, you know, again, to, to your audience who are investors or entrepreneurs, I don't think there'll be any surprise of the list. Um, there's demand risk. Um, to, have you actually uh, got a solution to a, a real problem, a strong unmet customer needs that's differentiated from, from what competitors have put out there? Demand risk, uh, technology risk. Um, can you build the thing? Can you actually deliver the solution? Execution risk, um, uh, which is you know sort of assuming the technology is working. Um, uh, can you actually um, make and deliver the product and 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 provide the kind of customer service that that people expect? And then there's financing risk. Um, will will people if you need external capital? Will will the people who provide that capital put it up? And so I'd say um, the, the least important of those is probably financing risk. You know, basically, if the other things are working, um, most of the time um, you, you should be able to raise money. I mean, of course, there are big sectors of the economy where people are at a disadvantage in fundraising and, and, and we can't ignore that. And then the other thing that happens, of course, is um, the capital markets can suddenly go very wobbly, either for a sector, you know, sort of think clean tech in the, the late um, uh, you, you know, 15 years ago, biotech goes through this every 10 years or so, um, uh, and, or uh, like with the Great Recession, the entire economy make it hard to uh, for, for uh, entrepreneurs to raise money. So financing risk is is important, but probably secondary. Um, uh, technology risk varies completely by sector. I, I would say. Um, if you, I mean, the, my my colleagues at MIT um, talk about tough tech. Um, you know, these are, um, there's often a lot of uh, bleeding edge science or really difficult engineering work that needs to be done, often hardware, um, and very long product development cycles. And um, it's just not always clear. The clean tech has this attribute, um, autonomous vehicles, you know, sort of drones, um, robotics. Um, it's, it's, it's not always clear that you can make the thing that you've set out to make. But in, in many other service businesses or in, in a lot of software-based businesses, say internet or mobile businesses, I mean, you, you know, if you're doing direct to consumer, the, the, your ability to sort of post a website, you know, that will, um, that, that'll get your product out there, merchandised and, and run the customer service and so forth. So the technology is, is uh, varies a lot by type, huge risk in biotech and, and tough tech. Um, the uh, execution risk um, is, um, real and more serious in some businesses than others. It, you know, if you have to move things around, physical things, um, if you actually have to deal um, directly with consumers or customers, um, that raises the execution risk. But demand risk is is at the core. I mean, that's it's really um, you know back to the question of the reasons why startups fail. Um, not having a product that meets a strong customer need. Um, it is is the number one cause of failure. It's a must have or, or a nice to have. Absolutely. Yeah, I might be suffering through that in my own venture. In the battle of money and ideas, who's currently dictating the rules? Is it, and this is from the audience. Is it more money looking for new great ideas or fresh ideas or, dis, or desperately looking for money from any source? You know, it's easy to be glib about this and talk about the huge amount of capital that's sort of um, um, washing around the ecosystem, bidding up prices. Um, 
bidding up prices really seriously in late for late stage startups, but but also for seed stage, early stage. Um, so that points to a shift in the bargaining power between the founders and the investors. Um, but I would never, ever, ever, you know, since I work um, so closely with students who are trying to launch startups, tell a, a, a first-time entrepreneur that it's easy to raise money. It's never easy to raise money. Painful, painful process, especially when it's even the best of times, maybe only 2% of them actually raise money. Exactly. Yeah. In your research, a question from the audience, in your research, what percentage of failures can be attributed to inability to raise enough capital? Hmm. Um, so this is a tricky one. Um, uh, one of the questions I asked with the survey is, how did the amount you raised in this first big round, this is a round between a half million and, and um, three million, um, how did it compare to your target when you set out on the fundraising process? You know, and and in the um, in the survey, a fraction of the founders raised actually substantially more than they targeted, and a fraction raised substantially less. Um, and not surprisingly, um, those who raised a lot less than they targeted were much more likely to fail. Now you got to be careful with causality there. Um, was that investors telling them they had neither a great idea nor a great team to pursue the idea and therefore they weren't able to meet their target? Um, or um, did they run out of money prematurely? Um, you know, Basically they were on the right track and if they could have just had enough runway to pivot one or two more times, they would have made it, but they ran out of capital. Probably some of both. But um, it, it, you know, a, a tough choice that an entrepreneur has to make if they set a target, right? You know, I, I tell the students I work with who are starting a startup, you probably need 18 months of, of capital. Um, um, but I mean, the right way to do it, of course, is to figure out what's going to be the milestone at which investors will look at your venture and say, you've made enough progress for me to boost your valuation from what it was to some new higher number. You know, and for some ventures, that may be six months out um, in terms of the amount of work you need to do and what you need to accomplish and prove. And for some, it may be, you know, if you're in the realm of tough tech, it may be three years, five years. Um, so it varies, but 18, 12 months is a pretty typical um, amount of time to put points on the board. And then I basically advise the founders tack on another six months um, because you're going to get some unpleasant surprise and you're going to need to pivot and try something else. So if you've got 18 months worth of runway, um, you, you hopefully will have shown enough progress to then go back and raise more. Um, and so the tricky thing for the entrepreneur is like you wanted to raise 18 months worth of capital, um, you, you know, at a given burn rate, sort of a team of a given size, but you only managed to raise a year's worth. Um, one of the, one of the um, failures that I profile in the book went through exactly this. They, was they were, were an apparel company. They were manufacturing um, um, dresses, professional women's apparel. And they wanted to raise 18 months and they raised 12. And boy, they were on the right track. They were making good progress. And if they had just had the extra six months, it probably would have been the difference between failure and success. So, you know, should they have pulled the plug um, after they raised only 12 months? Really hard if you've actually spent some of that money to go back to the original angel investors and say, hey, Sorry, um, here's half your money back. I spent the other half, and you know we tried to we tried to fill out the round, but we just couldn't get there. And 
no yeah. entrepreneurs doing that. They're taking it and give, taking their best shot. And, and hoping they also, get lucky. Hoping yeah. they get lucky. Yeah. 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 It's very understandable it behavior, but I think it does lead to a lot of failure. But I think uh, angels have gotten smarter over the years because they know now what VCs have known for a long time, and that is it's twice as much time, twice as much money, half the amount of income that you're projecting out. And so they they factor that in when they're making their investment. Yeah. And so Either multiply then, by two or divide by two. Yep. It always works out that way. I've done so many startups. And you learn everything the first year, everything you're ever going to need to know about that business. One of the questions from the audience is, what are some of the ways or resources to find people to create the technology for you, especially when you're not in the tech world and don't know tech developers? Oh, the world is um, full of people that'll do it for you um, with varying levels of quality and varying levels of cost. Um, you, you can um, get um, an awful lot of good help on Upwork. Um, you, you know, they're, they're basically... You, you put in a proposal um, and uh, people bid on it. And, and um, I've seen lots and lots of, of my student teams, um, you know, who sometimes they can scrape together $20,000, you know, they'll win a business, a, a venture competition yeah. or something like that. Um, and uh, for that amount of money, you can build a mobile app, you can get a website, a, a very good website posted. The trick, of course, is to um, figure out how to diligence the, the developer. That's one thing. And, and, and the best thing to do there is just go to somebody in your network who, who can look at their um, resume, the kinds of projects they've done. You know, ideally, they'll all have a GitHub, prof, um, a, a GitHub profile where you can look at some project work they've done. So, so you want a, a trusted friend or advisor who can help you vet them. The other thing to do, frankly, is... Um, you're, you're much more likely to get quality work when you outsource this this kind of effort um, if you've provided very very clear direction on what they're going to build, um, wireframes, mockups, and so forth, um, clear instructions. So 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 it's it's on the founder to uh, be very clear about what they're looking for uh, and and to really diligence. But but you can get you can get terrific outsourced help. The the, the other thing you got to be careful with when you do that though is that. Um, if you eventually get some traction and you're going to bring that application in-house, um, that, that it was built in a way that the developers you eventually hire in-house can make sense of what was done. Um, you know, if you're, if you're really careful, you're going to be careful about whether any of the code that was used in the product um, is, is, um, should have been licensed from somebody else. You know, most of the code out there is in open source libraries, but not all of it. No, I, I think it's good. I have a new venture called Funding Organizer, and I went around and asked people who would be the best partner to develop this. And three people came back with the same guy, and now he's my partner in this venture, and he did a great job. I paid him some cash, but gave him equity in it, and uh, that's worked out great. Another question from the audience, what would you say a percentage of time startups spend raising money? Hmm. Um. It varies. Um, you know, a serial founder who's got a deep network can uh, do it with one phone call. Um, um, but um, I, you know, it's not uncommon to hear stories of of um, of first-time founders um, on their first round, um, as many as fifty or a hundred contacts um, with VCs, and and it's. Um, 
it, it's a process akin to dating. Um, you know, you don't get married after the first <laughs> date. Um, you know, so so most good investors are going to want to get to know you before they commit. And 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 the same thing's true for the entrepreneur, right? They they want to um, basically see, you know, because if this person comes on your cap table and it takes 10 years for you to go from glimmer in the eye to a good outcome for your business, you're going to be with these individuals for a long, long time. So um, it is uh, in some ways a lot like a romantic relationship where you want to be, you know, the more serious it gets, the, the better, um, the, the more sure you, you should be. So I would say, um, you know, a, a good rule of thumb is that when the founder is, um, in fundraising mode, they're probably spending half their time um, on um, you know, sort of making the contacts and, and then actually delivering the pitches and sort of trying to make sense of what happened. And, yeah, and, and I, that, I, can take, that can take several weeks, if not months. I found that when I raised money, if, even if I knew the people well, it could take six to nine months to close the deal. And yeah. if, if you have a lot of people interested, then it goes faster because everybody wants again. It's no different than watching Shark Tank and watching all the sharks yeah. all one in on a deal. Yeah, for sure. And, and the, the best entrepreneurs know how to create that fear of missing it, FOMA, FOMO, fear yeah. of missing out. Um, and and boy, it's like um, you know, for folks who remember high school chemistry, a super saturated solution. When you drop the crystal in, you know, the whole thing just suddenly. Um, but Adam Jones on, on in your chat is saying six months. You know, it's a number you just um, you just use. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I think so. Pretty, well, pretty typical, based on my experience of doing this. Another question from the audience: Why are information system startups more successful than consumer products? Is it based on the location of the startup and the availability of investors with expertise in information system startups? <clears throat> uh I, you know, I'd only be guessing here. I didn't dig deeply enough into this, but boy, I've learned a lot about um, packaged goods startups. Um, uh, and um, um, it, it, I, I've gained a new respect for just how hard it is to, and you see a lot of this on Shark Tank, right? Sort of somebody with a, with a great idea for a, a food a, a item or a beverage. Um, and um, the number of mistakes you can make, because um, because you always have, you know, usually it's something um, distinctive, quirky um, in the ingredients, and sometimes um, catches fire, and sometimes people just think it's weird, you know. So it takes a certain amount of testing. It's really hard to find uh, people who will formulate the thing, the co-packers. Um, it's incredibly hard to get the shelf space, and and and. Um, uh, you can pay an awful lot of money in slotting allowances and so forth. And then then really, really tricky to figure out once you start to get some traction, how fast to roll the thing out regionally and nationwide. So there are mistakes you can make every step along the way. And what I found is, um, you know, it's true that being a serial entrepreneur with industry experience, um, domain experience matters in some places much, much more than others. And I think food and beverage, you know, that category of consumer, it was true with my apparel founders too. Like you really needed to know there are all these specialized tasks in apparel manufacturing, fabric sourcer, pattern cutter, quality control, and they have to fit together and, 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 and you need to basically engineer a process to, to have all this stuff work. And so I think consumer businesses are less forgiving of a lack of domain expertise. I think, you know, if you look at, um, 
Instagram, the founders of Instagram did not have to previously work at Kodak or Polaroid, you know, to understand photo sharing. Um, they had to know something about building a great design and sort of building a very usable app, but they had a great idea. And I think you're more likely to see that in, in information technology-based businesses to sort of, um, sort of step in without a lot of prior industry and domain expertise. And, and, and I think the high failure rates in, in consumer is you, you think it's easy because everybody's a consumer, um, but, but boy, there's a lot of tough stuff in building a consumer business. Well, and the customer acquisition cost is high. There are so yeah. many players playing in the same space as uh, you do. And you know, business to business is easier because you just got to get a few customers in the beginning and the cost to as basically your time. It's not like you're running all these ads everywhere. You have to do, I have a friend of mine whose daughter has a um, almond butter uh, business with uh, CBD inside of it. And she's gotten written up in every magazine and sales are good, but they're not exploding because she needs you know, probably 5 million bucks to go and constantly get the word out to really set it on fire to take off. Yeah, building a brand that way is is tens of millions of dollars, and and building the sort of getting the first few thousand customers is this um, tricky guerrilla marketing problem um, that that takes a lot of skill too to to sort of know how to do that. Uh, question I have is, what about if your parents were entrepreneurs? Any statistical proof that reduces your risk of failure? Didn't look at that one. I wish I had in in my survey. Um, we do know. Um, you know, from academic work that um, the children of entrepreneurs are more likely to be entrepreneurs. So, so we know that the propensity to, to, to create a business um, goes up um, if, you, if you've got that in your family background. I don't know what it does to, to success and failure rates. And you're right. I'm, I started a group with a couple other guys called Dads and Daughters, and we were all CEOs of startups. And practically all of our kids have their own businesses. Yeah, my daughter has a global marketing practice, so it, it falls in line. Uh, a question from the audience. If, if you wanted to list three important recommendations that founders need to watch out for right at the beginning of their startup and before going to fundraising, what would they be? Um, so uh, I'll give you three. Um, and the, the, so the, the book um, and, and steer people to the book, or there's a, you mentioned a Harvard Business Review, there's an article that, that talks about uh, two of these early stage failure patterns. The, the book is structured around um, failure patterns and, and, and how to avoid them. Um, and one of them with the, um, probably the most common killer of early stage startups, um, I call a false start. So you know, we're, we're several months past the Olympics now, but you, you see it in track and field or swimming or horse racing, uh, not in horse racing, auto racing, you know, where the athlete sort of literally jumps the gun in order to try to get an edge. And entrepreneurs can do the same thing. There's um, there's such a, um, a bias for action, a desire to get going. And, and you know, they tend to um, have a vision burning bright in their head of a problem and a solution for the problem. Uh, and they just want to start building and selling as fast as they can. And these entrepreneurs um, skip a round of upfront research. Um, Steve Blank, the lean startup guru, would call it customer discovery research. It's a good name for it, which is basically, um, hey, is there an unmet need out there? 
Um, and of the many ways to solve that unmet need is the solution I have in mind, the right solution. So, so that's work. Um, you know, a good user experience designer knows how to do this work, but every entrepreneur should be a user experience designer at the beginning. And we're not talking about work that takes four months to do. It's probably more like four weeks. Um, but if you build and launch the wrong product, a flawed product, it probably will take you four months to build it realize it's not working and figure out what to do next. And if you've only raised a year's worth of capital and you burn through the first four months worth on a failed flawed version of, of, of the first version of the product, um, you've really boosted your failure odds. You know, and so that's that's a bad trade a lot of entrepreneurs are making to save four weeks of upfront work because they're so eager to get going. Um, they um, they, they um, jump the gun, they, they do a false start and, and they waste four months in order to save four weeks, bad trade. Um, very understandable. It's human nature. You know, we think of entrepreneurs who just want to do it, like, just do it, just get going. So that's one. Um, the second one is um, somewhat related. Um, I call it a false positive. So, you know, again, we're, we're all very familiar with false positives and false negatives through COVID testing. And it turns out entrepreneurs are subject to false positives and false negatives all the time. You can get a signal that your idea is off track, and but when it really has a good idea, um, and you can get a signal that you're you're on the right track when when in fact the 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 um, opportunity may not be as good as you think it is, and um, entrepreneurs are particular. So the so the advice on the first one is just do that research, right? That's avoid the false start. On the second one, you're you're likely to see these false positives when early adopters enthusiastically embrace what you've got. And um, uh, that's often the case. You know, there's often um, some customers out there that are foaming at the mouth, just waiting for what you've got. And um, if there are a lot more out there like them, that's great. You're in business. Um, but it's often the case that the needs of the mainstream customers, the people you need to build a big business, aren't the same or are not as strongly held as the early adopters. And, and you know, if you get the signal that demand is strong from the early adopters, you can go barreling off in this direction. Sometimes they're more sophisticated. So Dropbox is a good example of this. I'm sure everybody's familiar with the product. Drew Houston's early adopters were um, software engineers, like incredibly sophisticated users of a file management service, multiple devices, lots of collaboration, big files and so forth, uh, lots of updating. and but, but he wanted to build a big business. He wanted to build a business that would be easy enough for his mother to store her recipes. That was, the, that was in his head when he built the thing. So he deliberately kept the product simple, left out features that would have appealed to his early adopters, the software engineers, um, and he bet right, right? The product was good enough to sign up the early adopters, even though it was missing some things they wanted, you know, and, and it was fantastic for the mainstream. So you got to watch out for the false positive. And the way you do that is simply that kind of research I mentioned um, to avoid the false start. Make sure you do it both for early adopters and mainstream, you know, and, and understand if there are different, they're not always differences. Sometimes, you know, the early adopters are representative of the mainstream. Sometimes they're not. So you don't know until you launched and tried and then you exactly or, or run really good, good experiments. Yeah, I've made that mistake. The first one you said we build it. And we thought everything was right. And then we found out that when we tested it with the client, they didn't want it that way at all. We had to rebuild the whole thing. And it, it taught me something that I'm now using for my other venture, which is to get the, 
the clients involved in the actual construction of the product. Best way and, to do it. Yeah. Risky too, though. I mean, especially if they're big B2B customers, they can sometimes steer you to their idiosyncratic needs, you know, and you end up... Um, you end up, if you take that too far, um, having to customize for everybody. And that's okay if that's the kind of business you want to build. So you can make a lot of money customizing a solution. But um, that doesn't work so well either. But I, I made sure of what you just said. Yeah. Um, the gentleman who asked the question just now said, related question to the one just answered, are there any stats on probability of success with in-house tech development versus outsource? So what's better, in-house or outsourcing? Um, I uh, did ask a question not only about outsourcing tech, but there's all sorts of stuff you can outsource, right? When you're um, when you're building a startup, you can outsource your customer service, like you know, basically hire a call center. You can outsource warehousing. So I asked a broad question about um, about the amount of outsourcing of of all these operational and technical capabilities, and didn't didn't predict basically. Um, it, it didn't separate the the um, successful firms from the less successful firms. I think the reason for that might be this is a place where a sharp pencil, you know, basically um, sort of, I mean, it, it, it's hard for an entrepreneur to build these in-house capabilities, but sometimes you get a competitive edge from, you know, if you really want your customer service people to behave in a certain way, they better be employees. Um, and, um, you know, I think entrepreneurs, whether failed or successful, tend to make smart decisions about when to outsource and not. So so I think that's one of the reasons it didn't separate success and failure. Another question from the audience. If your invention is 15 to 20 years ahead of its time, uh, where would you start to increase buy-in? Like, you know, you're worried that you're so far ahead of the market. Yeah, there's... Um, there is, um, uh, uh, again, Markets Wharton research, um, uh, good research on first mover advantage, sort of do the, um, and by the way, we tend, to, we, we tend to identify companies as the first mover when they're often not. Amazon was not the first oh, yeah. seller of online it was books. Facebook, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, Google was by no means the first search engine. Yeah, like 15th, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, if you find the, the true pioneer, um, their failure rates are quite high, um, and, and uh, uh, it, it, it's just super important to. I mean, if you think of all of the disadvantages the pioneer has, they've got to educate a market, right? Missionary selling, you know, this behavioral change that the customer has to make, we've got to explain it and convince people that the way they're doing something, um, you know, there's a better way to do it, and and that's expensive and it's time consuming, and you know, you got to find the people willing to take a risk with you. And then the other big risk is, you know, if, if it's it's often the case that the solution itself will um, um, require some new technology or some kind of novel engineering, you know, so you're taking both technical risk, engineering risk, um, and demand risk, and uh, uh, you, you know, there's there's no um, if if you need an ecosystem of people to come and play along with you. It's not there, you know. So one of the cases, the case that actually opens the book, is of Jibo. Um, people might or might not remember it, but um, it was a social robot out of the MIT Media Lab, and uh, uh, it didn't move around. It sort of sat on a base, but it had um, um, it could swivel in ways that were very expressive. So um, and 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 Cynthia Brazil, the professor who um, conceived the product, is all about 
um, robots creating an emotional connection to, to humans. And, and she's done a lot of very sophisticated. And so this was true. Um, Jibo actually built a really strong bond with families would put it in the kitchen and you know, you'd come home and Jibo would say, hey, I told you this morning that your commute was going to be bad. How was it? Um, <laughs> things like, and, and so, um, but it also, you know, tried to do the kinds of things we're very accustomed to now with Alexa. Um, and, you, you know, sort of how did my stocks do today? Or, you know, what's the weather going to be like? And um, Jibo cost $900 and, um, and, and Alexa, which came out of nowhere, no one expected smart speakers when Amazon launched that product, you know, so, so Jibo was the first of its kind, a, tr a, a true social robot. Um, and people might say that Ibo, the Sony had a little uh, robot dog, um, um, but, but it wasn't, it, 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 it couldn't tell you the time uh, because dogs don't do that. So um, there's just so many things that can go wrong and, and, and Jibo saw all of it. You know, they, they had to create demand, they had to create the product. Yeah, 15 or 20 years is, is <laughs> good luck with that one. You're right about the education. I was in a venture. I created the first insurance product to insure small business bank accounts against cyber theft. And uh, the chairman said, what's your biggest concern when they made this investment big insurance company? And I said, I pray every day for competition. And he goes, you, why would you tell us that? You're an idiot. Like, why did we invest in you? And I said, because I'll spend all your money educating the market. And I'll blow through all of it. And when I come back to you, you're going to tell me you don't want to put any more money in. And that, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another question from the audience. What percentage of effort money is normal as completely wasted? I feel like I'm at 20% dead ends, 80% good expense. Want to be uh, a good shepherd of investors' money. So that's a wonderful question. I've never heard it before. Um, uh and, you know, I think it goes to, um, you know, th there's two ways we could define waste. There's sort of largesse, um, you know, I'm sitting on an Aeron chair, um, it, you know, it's not a cheap chair, but, you know, I splurged from my own, my, my employer, the university didn't buy it, I bought it for myself. You know, you can imagine there have been startups that have tricked out fancy offices in, in parts of town where um, they shouldn't be. They should, you know, be creating tables out of out of doors and, you know, resting on sawhorses and et cetera, et cetera. So there's that kind of waste. And that's a certain kind of founder. I wouldn't say we couldn't generalize. You know, most entrepreneurs are pretty thrifty. And then there's the waste of of dead ends trying a product or a marketing approach that doesn't work. And, um, you know, if you learn from that, um, it's not wasteful. It's only wasteful if there was a cheaper way to test the concept. <laughs> and, and I do think a lot of entrepreneurs miss opportunities to run a test that's rigorous and reliable, but a lot cheaper than just actually building the thing and launching the thing or, you know, going, going full throttle on a marketing program when you could test it at a smaller scale. So, yeah, so, so 20 feels good. <laughs> uh, question from the audience. So why do you think Amazon just came out with Astro, a similar product to Jibo? Um, so the, uh, the CEO of Jibo who comes to class, he's a wonderful class guest, um, predicted that in 2022, we were going to see a whole flurry of social robots uh, from big tech companies and, and from startups. 
Um, there's already a few of them in the elder care market. The, the original concept for Jibo was um, a, a companion for, for, for folks who were um, home alone and, and uh, you know, want that, want that kind of companionship. Um, couldn't sell that to investors. Um, the folks who invest in the elder care products are, you know, they're more accustomed to cell phones with big, big buttons on them. Yeah, you know, right. sim- simple things, not not robots. Um, and uh, you know, so they pivoted to family cohesion. The the Jibo um, pivot from was from elder care to um, a forty four year old VC who's got. Um, um, ornery teenagers, you know, surly teenagers, and, and you need something in the kitchen to sort of strike up the conversation between the parents and the kids. Um, and, and for many consumers, it worked exactly that way, uh, just not enough of them. So, so I think we'll see a lot. Social robots will be a thing. I think we'll, we'll, we'll see it. And um, um, Astro is probably um, more like um, Ibo was the Sony product, A-I-B-O, that um, uh, still beloved by some people out there. Um, uh, Jibo is going to be smarter than Astro. Astro, um, I don't think is going to talk, but we'll see. Did you find any relationship between racial background and gender and startup failure? If yes, how are they related? Um, the survey wasn't a reliable way to look at gender. Um, one of the reasons was um, failed female founders were much more likely to respond to the survey than failed male founders. I don't know what that says about the resilience of a female ego compared to a male ego, but but they were overrepresented in my sample. So one of the things I did subsequently, it's not in the book, um, I, I did a, a, um, a, a, a you, you actually can sort of run software that looks at, at the gender of people's names pretty reliably and um, looked at a much bigger slice of, of the venture capital and, and angel-backed universe. And it turned out that um, there was no statistical difference between males and females in, in terms of, of, um, of early stage failure rates, um, basically the same. In fact, the failure rate for females was a little lower, but there wasn't a statistically significant difference. Monica, I didn't look at, um, at race there. It's a good, it's a good next step. Um, and uh, you know the trick. The trick when looking um, at any of these things is my sample is people that actually managed to raise money. And if you've got big, big um, groups that have tried to raise money and and for whatever reason have been excluded from the fundraising world, um, you know you got to be careful with the conclusions you draw from failure rates. If if um, wouldn't surprise me to find out that just because it's so hard um, based on race and gender for for some groups to raise money. If the if the success rates are actually higher for the ones who manage to get get through all the difficulties, um, but um, tricky analysis and important for us to do, and, and, a, and a next step for me. Uh, in the book, you said failure isn't easily defined. How do you define failure? Y- yeah, it's not easily defined. I mean, um, the, the the dictionary definition of failure is um, a shortfall from expectations, and and um, you have to ask what expectations and whose expectations. So, you know, a failure from the founder's perspective can be different than a failure from the investor's perspective can be different from society's perspective. Um, you, you know, um, there are, um, uh, so so I simplify in the book and, and the definition of failure in the book is um, 
a company is a failure if its early investors did not or never will make money, get their money back, um, you know, make a positive return on the investment. But that is an oversimplification, right? There are um, companies that are financially not successful by that definition that from society's perspective um, have actually done good. Um, Jibo might be an example, right? They sort of showed the way for some entrepreneurs um, what to do and what not to do in social robotics. And we have this next generation of robots for the elder care market as a result. Um, pe people get trained in failed startups and they go off and they take those skills into other companies. You know, and, and, and at the same way, um, there are a lot of startups out there that are financially successful, but they have products um, that we all wish didn't exist, you know, um, addictive products, um, you know, they coarsen democracy, they exacerbate income inequality. So, um, you know, like so many things, um, failure is complicated and, and, and you, you really have to do ask from whose perspective. The reason I use the investor's perspective is um, if you take the long-term look at startups, by the time they get about five years out, um, uh, less than half of them, they sort of push them, they push them in every direction. And, and um, most investors um, uh, won't sign them. Um, you know, they, would, they will tell the entrepreneur, I see too many um, things. If, if I sign this thing that says, um, um, I, you know, I'm not going to disclose any of your, um, any of your proprietary um, insights, um, that'll constrain them in terms of their ability to invest in other things. And the reality is um, an idea can't be trademarked. In most, what most entrepreneurs bring on an NDA is really an idea. It, it isn't subject to, it's not proprietary intellectual property. If you're in biotech, you know, and, and you've, you've got some uh, genetic algorithm, then for sure, um, you know, those investors um, will sign and should sign an NDA as should employees you're recruiting and so forth. Um, Trademarks, um, super important to do early, um, you know, just to make sure that if you think you're going to use a name, because because um, attracting customers um, will depend crucially. So that's an important thing to do early. Um, patenting too, um, if you're in the kind of business where you can create a patent, uh, you need to get that in motion as, as early as you think um, makes sense. But um, an awful lot of entrepreneurs um, won't need an NDA and um, won't be patenting anything. Tom, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm hoping you're going to do another book, uh, especially because there's so much new things constantly happening here. And certainly you guys learn a lot over there because there's so many great entrepreneurs. Yeah, that come thank, out of thanks, Harvard. Mark. Um, it was a lot of work to do this one. I think the next one won't be for um, entrepreneurs and investors. It's going to be, uh, but, but be close to your art because you've done some work in the classroom. Um, I want to write a book called Educating Entrepreneurs, which basically be for other educators of entrepreneurs, whether they be in universities or in, in, in incubators and accelerators. And I, th I think we've learned a lot about how to pass these ideas along and what works and what doesn't work. And um, my, my goal is to sort of put all that together. Well, everybody have a great weekend. Thanks again for being on the show. And uh, everyone be safe. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.